As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to another edition of Odd Lots. I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor at Bloomberg Markets. And I'm Joe Weisenthal, Managing Editor at Bloomberg Markets. So, Joe, what if I told you we were going to do a whole episode on insurance? You'd be excited, uh, right? Really yeah, excited. Oh, yeah. I'd be, I'd be totally thrilled. I lo- yeah, of course. That'd be so exciting. <laughs> All right. I detect a touch of sarcasm. Uh, what if I told you we were going to do a show about insurance and pirates? So if you told me that, I would say anything pirates related is sure to explode the viral content all over the internet and that people (laughs) will be thrilled about this episode because I know how the internet loves pirates. And uh, so I would say I'm very excited about that. All right. Everyone loves a good pirate story, right? And everyone loves a good pirate's market story. So let me set set the scene for us. Uh, So last year, you might remember, Joe, there was a bunch of news coverage about a ship that sank. It was called the Thunder, and it was illegally fishing. uh, I think it was fishing for something called the Patagonian toothfish. Do you remember Mm. that? I have to admit, I'm not sure if I remember that one specifically. Okay, so the interesting thing about that ship was it was supposedly sunk by its crew. So it it was sunk on purpose. It was being pursued by another ship Mm, because it was illegally fishing. And the really interesting thing is the Thunder actually was insured by someone, by quite a prominent uh, London-based insurance company. And the owners of the vessel, the self-sunk vessel, supposedly ended up coming after the insurance company for uh, compensation, which you might not expect, right? Like pirates essentially going to insurers to get compensation. Seems a bit weird. Yeah, you definitely wouldn't expect it for all kinds of reasons. I think one reason that jumps out at me is just a fascinating story is this intersection of something that seems rogue and outside the law and old-timey with pirates and something like insurance, which I think of as being highly regulated and highly sort of this modern financial thing. And so the intersection of the two is pretty fascinating. Exactly. So it turns out that insurance companies insuring illegal fishing boats is actually a lot more common than you would think. And we have someone here today who's going to be able to talk to us a lot more about it. She is Dana Miller. She's a marine scientist at the University of British Columbia. And she actually published a study just last month saying, that illegal vessels appear to be insured uh, almost or just as often as uh, legal vessels. Again, very interesting uh, dynamic that you wouldn't necessarily expect. (laughs) 
Dana, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Oh, yes. Uh, hi. So just to begin with, maybe you could walk us through your expertise in this subject, because uh, in my mind, it's not often that marine scientists end up looking at uh, the world of insurance. Yeah, it's kind of an obscure topic, um, that's for sure. Um, well, I generally focus on um, policy issues. Um, or that's where my research has kind of led over the years. Um, I should mention that I was previously a postdoctoral researcher at the University of British Columbia, and that's where I conducted this research. Um, but presently, I'm, I'm, I'm actually working for a um, non-governmental organization, Oceana, um, and I'm taking this recent research project forward into a new stage but yeah, I'm, I'm very broadly focused in my research interests, and it tends to be quite applied. So I look at different conservation problems um, in the marine environment, and um, just I'm not limited to any one discipline. I kind of go out there, learn what I can about the problem, and um, find some tools and do some research to try to um, develop recommendations for solving that problem. So that's in a way, what led me to, um, you know, the topic of insurance and illegal fishing. So uh, just to put it all together, it actually makes a lot of sense that you would look at insurance markets from this sort of, uh, you know, marine conservation standpoint, because the, the boats that are being insured, they're illegal fishing boats, they're using methods they're, uh, that are illegal, they're contributing to overfishing. And theoretically, if they're able to get insurance on that activity, then that is sort of a de facto subsidy that could harm the harm ecology. Yes, yeah, that's right. Well, we, we actually, we came to the topic of insurance because um, I guess we were looking for an innovative approach at uh, tackling illegal fishing. Um, as you may be aware, it's an unresolved, internationally pervasive problem. It's, um, it's quite destructive to marine habitats and unsustainably depletes fish populations. Um, it's, it's just a big, bad problem. And uh, common approaches used in combating illegal fishing typically involve... Um, surveillance activities, inspections, much more obvious um, approaches. But we decided instead to consider the economics of illegal fishing um, and understanding that if the costs of illegal fishing are made higher or the benefits reduced, um, fishers may not be as motivated to illegally fish. And insurance comes into this because insurance can be financially beneficial to a vessel because it eliminates the risk of large financial loss should an accident occur. So understanding all of this, um, we wanted to investigate whether illegal fishing vessels use marine insurance as a financial service. And that, that was kind of our starting point. And, and then step one is to figure out, can we find those links between illegal fishing vessels and insurance companies? So how profitable is illegal fishing, actually? And how much does insurance play a role or how big a factor is insurance in that profitability? So I don't have um, numbers in front of me, but I can tell you that, I mean, obviously, uh, there are many different forms of, of fishing and some forms of fishing aren't very profitable at all. It depends on what uh, is being, what species is being fished for, um, where the fishing is taking place, how large that operation is. Um, you mentioned earlier um, the incident with Thunder, and Thunder was fishing for Patagonian toothfish, which is actually a highly profitable um, fish. So there would be much more economic incentive to fish for that particular species um, and to illegally fish in this case for for that particular species but that wouldn't always be the case you know it is um, looking at uh, that 
um, equation of costs and benefits and figuring out where insurance fits in, um, how much the insurance might cost and whether it's a, a worthwhile cost to the to the um, operator of the vessel. And um, that, you know, that was a question that we asked, as I said, are illegal fishing vessels utilizing insurance? Is this something that is part of their equation. And surprisingly to me, when I, when I first did this, um, the, the investigation, I wasn't expecting to find, find out that some of these vessels were using insurance, um, particularly in cases where they weren't legally required to. But as it turns out, a lot of them were using insurance and we were able to find links to, um, uh, to evidence uh, supporting the existence of these policies. So l- let me just ask the obvious question. I mean, this particular vessel, it had already, I would say, a, a checkered past. Um, it had switched its uh, flag of origin several times. Um, it seemed obvious there were issues with it. So why was it able to get insurance? That's a very good question. <laughs> um, that's a question I've asked myself many times. And um, and I think that the simplest answer is that I, I believe, I feel that the simplest answer is that uh, the due diligence process um, involved in, you know, screening a vessel prior to um, providing it with insurance just simply doesn't include searching for information on illegal fishing. So there are lists of ele- official lists of illegal v- fishing vessels that exist that are publicly accessible, but insurers um, are not checking these lists. This problem is just simply not on their radar, um, which is it's surprising when there's such notorious publicly visible illegal fishing vessels that are still able to gain insurance, but but it just seems as though it's not part of their process. It's really surprising. I mean, just thinking about getting insurance on a car, and a car is not a very expensive item to insure uh, relative to a boat, but you know, you instantly would get checked for the driving record, the record of the driver and the history of the car and all kinds of things. So it seems surprising that on these boats, which are uh, much bigger deals than uh, than cars, that there isn't much uh, due diligence on that. Right. Or you think about the financial yeah. industry in general, right? And we have all these rules, especially for companies like banks about know your customer, all of that. Has that not fed into the insurance industry at all? Oh, certainly. I think it, it obviously it has. But in concerning illegal fishing as an issue, I don't I don't think that insurers feel that they are responsible for this particular issue, that it's it's just not on their radar yet. Probably nobody has ever brought up this issue, um, you know, to the industry. It's it's not something they've ever thought about or thought that that had concerned them. So, um, but th- that can change obviously um, because of this research, we're bringing attention to the issue and and showing that insurers can potentially have a more active role in regulating the fishing industry and and cutting off access to um, financial services such as insurance um, to illegal fishing vessel operators. But yeah, I mean, it is very, it was very surprising. But uh, like I said, it's just, it simply was being missed. And I think that's as, I think that is as simple as, as it is. So we mentioned the example of the Thunder, a notorious illegal vessel carrying insurance. How many vessels did you actually find illegal vessels that had insurance policies on them or links to insurers? 
Yeah, so we screened the internet for sources of information. Um, in total, we had we were looking for information on 480 vessels that are, have either been um, officially listed or they're suspected by um, governments or non-governmental organizations for involvement in illegal fishing. Um, and in total, we identified the insurers of 67 um, vessels that have been known for their involvement in illegal fishing uh, illegal fishing activity. 67. Wow. Keeping in mind um, that list that we began with of 480 vessels, um, some of those vessels we had very little information on, so it was difficult to, to search for any information on them. But, um, but I, I was, of course, very surprised at the high number, 67, um, that we were able to find information on. So when you think of pirates, you know, and why piracy on the high seas exists to this day, there's the obvious problem that nobody re really regulates the oceans, right? I mean, there are these treaties and stuff where people try to do it in various entities, but ultimately oceans are sort of the last sort of truly lawless place left on earth. Does that problem of the difficulty of regulating oceans apply to regulating the insurance companies that would have to uh, provide financing for the oceans that nobody has, you know, that the various insurers out there who might be providing this maritime insurance don't have a single regulator that could command them to implement something like know your customer or something like that, that there's no uh, any, you know, sort of governing body for them? Well, I don't. I don't think that that's necessarily the issue here, because I wouldn't say that um, marine insurers aren't well regulated. It's just that they're not um, made to pay attention to this particular issue. Um, it is true that uh, that fishing vessels are often overlooked in international legislation, particularly when they're operating in what we call the high seas, so um, waters that are outside the reach of any one nation. They operate um, outside of uh, 200 nautical miles of any coastal state. That's um, what we call the high seas. Um, and often these vessels under international law, they, they aren't required to have the same um, safety. They don't have the safety, same safety requirements. Um, uh, they're not required to have an international um, maritime organization number affixed to the vessel. They're not necessarily required to have um, any kind of vessel tracking technology in use. Um, so there's, a there's various things that are normally required of vessels um, that aren't necessarily required of fishing vessels because they just kind of slip through the cracks and particularly when they're operating in the high seas um, and they're not um, being watched by any one particular country that well. There's a whole variety of different issues at play here. Um, I won't get into detail with them here, but vessels, uh, they are registered under countries mm -hmm. as well. And we have a common practice um, um, within the maritime world of using a flag of convenience, and that's registering a vessel under a, a country that that vessel may not have any um, obvious affiliation to, um, and it's a way of kind of skirting some of those regulations. I'm kind of getting off track here, but you mentioned- No, no, I, um, our, our audience the, loves uh, nerdy, in-the-weed stuff, so this is all really important yeah, and You just kind of mentioned the lawlessness nature of the uh, the high seas, and, I, and I, particularly with um, fishing vessels, you, you t touched on something there, because there are a whole number of issues that, um, um, that we, within the NGO community and also academics are trying to um, discuss and, and improve the situation. So if Joe and I bought 
a ship of some sort and registered it under the most convenient flag of convenience. And then we went out illegally fishing. How easy would it actually be for us to get insurance? Would anyone kind of ask questions or check the background? What's the actual process here? Yeah, so that was one question also that I, I was interested in. I'm interested in um, whether insurance companies um, prefer a vessel to have uh, be registered under the flag of one country versus the flag of another. So, the, you know, the flag of a country that is more reputable in terms of adhering to various different regulations um, as opposed to another country that is known for... Um, for not um, being so good in that department. So um, that was one question that I was uh, trying to figure out whether, you know, insurers are aware of that. And I I am still involved in that work now where um, within this new role at the Oceana um, that I'm not now in, um, I'm hoping to work with the insurance industry to engage with insurers and try to learn more about the policies and procedures that are in place uh, for insuring fishing vessels and um, whether they can um, introduce new policies to pay attention to some of these things that may not be so obvious, um, maybe screen against um, some of the characteristics that are more common amongst illegal fishing vessels. So have you seen any evidence yet that, you know, perhaps due to the publicity that the Thunder incident got, that insurance companies want to start taking this issue more seriously? Um, yes, I, I, I do believe that um, that the media attention that has been gained um, through the publication of um, our manuscript, which occurred about a, um, just over a month ago, um, I, I believe that we have gotten the attention of um, individuals within the or contacts within the insurance industry. Um, I have been in touch with um, some contacts, representatives from various insurance companies to share that manuscript. Um, and uh, I'm optimistic. I um, So far, there's been a positive response um, from those I've been in touch with. And most contacts have acknowledged the importance of this work and showed some interest in engaging in future discussions with me on this topic. So I, I feel that there is an opportunity here for sure. Um, and uh, I'm very optimistic. All right. Well, Dana, thank you so much for joining us today. That was really, really interesting and uh, a topic that I think a lot of our listeners will enjoy as well. Yeah, it is really fascinating. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Tracy, that was awesome, and I got really excited about that part where you talked about us buying a ship together and getting insurance, because now I think uh, we should totally do that, just as a big big stunt, a big act of uh, uh, performative journalism. Should should this be our summer project? We'll go to Nigeria, charter a ship. We'll get a ship, we'll go fishing, and we'll see if we can uh, get insurance. Excellent. All right, on a slightly more serious note, um, I... I mean, I thought the whole topic was really interesting. And again, mostly because you never really think about the role that insurers might have in piracy or in illegal fishing, and certainly yeah. not on you know the environmental landscape, which is obviously uh, suffering from illegal fishing quite a lot. So, I wonder if in the future this will be the kind of thing where we have criminal-based, um, Bitcoin-based insurers. Because if you think about 
You know, insurance reduces the cost of doing business for crime, but typically criminals can't get insurance. But if you could theoretically have an insurance company that was completely outside of the purview of regulators, uh, there would probably be an opportunity there to insure uh, extra legal businesses. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the future, whether we see uh, the Internet enable such activities. So I have two. Is that crazy? No, it's not actually. So I have two responses to that. One is which um, Christine Lagarde actually gave from the IMF gave a speech on a similar topic last week about banks and the know your customer rules and how because of these new rules, banks were retreating from certain areas of the world, Hmm. certain geographical areas. And so that left a hole for illegal operators and potentially Bitcoin based banks to come in. Uh, So it's not that out there. Um, My second thought, though, and this is related, is that there's a school of uh, thought about how insurers could eventually grow to become the arbiters of human behavior and business behavior, because after all, they're the Mm. ones who uh, put their money on the line and, and they end up actually shaping human behavior. So in the future, rather than having, you know, potentially laws be the most important factor over human behavior, you could actually have insurers who end up being the driving force. So who knows? Right. Like there's been talk about, you know, insurers bearing the most risk from, say, climate change, for example. And so perhaps they, more than anyone else, have the incentive to uh, push businesses and individuals towards climate-friendly activities. Exactly. All right, so we managed to veer from piracy to Bitcoin to insurers as a global political forces. So um, that was fun. That was a successful podcast, I would say. I would say I would say that's a, the mark of a successful episode. All right, excellent. Thanks for listening, everyone, to the latest episode of Odd Lots. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at the Stalwart, and I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. Thanks for listening. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.